2: Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it.
1: Find Ear Hustle wherever you get
3: your podcasts. Partly Cloudy Skies, welcome to this Thursday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, newly named Executive Director of the Georgia Legislative Black Caucus, Deanna Hamilton, talks about top priorities for 2020. But one
2: of the things about being strategic is having the ability to, to build relationships across party lines. Um, even though we're a nonpartisan organization, this is a time for us to be collective in our efforts.
3: That's coming up in just a moment. But first, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp is pushing back on a new report from the Trump administration. It cites Georgia as leading the nation in the rate of new COVID-19 infections. Now, during Wednesday's press conference, Governor Kemp lashed out at local media. Kemp stated Georgia may lead the country for new COVID-19 infections for every 100,000 people. However,
0: look, I'm fine. If you want to put the per capita numbers out there, i, I look at them every day. And that's good. But when you put that out there, also put that our hospitalizations have dropped.
3: Now, Governor Kemp also says COVID-19 cases have dropped by nearly 30 percent since late July. The White House report calls Georgia's gains, quote, small and fragile. At this time, the State Department of Public Health is reporting 243,982 cases in Georgia since March. And the reported number of deaths, 4,849. And the number of hospitalizations continues to increase. It's now 22,664. And of those, 4,143 are ICU admissions. This is all according to the Georgia Department of Public Health. And finally, Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms will speak tonight at the Democratic National Convention, virtually. Mayor Bottoms has a primetime slot shortly before Vice President Joe Biden officially accepts the Democratic presidential nomination. Now, other Georgians have had their say, including former President and Georgia Governor Jimmy Carter, Stacey Abrams, and state lawmakers Sam Park and Nakima Williams. And next week, it's the Republicans' turn. This is Closer Look. And you're tuned to 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. This week, former Georgia House Minority Leader and Democratic gubernatorial candidate, Stacey Abrams spoke at the Democratic National Convention. Virtually, that is.
1: This nation belongs to all of us. And in every election, we choose how we will create a more perfect union. Not by taking sides, but by taking stock of where we are and what we need.
3: Abrams' speech was titled Leadership Matters, and Abrams wasn't the only notable Georgian at the DNC. State Representative Sam Park was also in the lineup, and tonight, Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms will address the party. Yes, it will be a full throttle of campaign ads from both major parties, as the November election is just 74 days away. Meanwhile, there's still the pandemic to grapple with. And as mentioned earlier, more Georgia cities are enacting mask and face covering executive orders. Now, a pandemic wasn't originally on the 2020 legislative priorities for the Georgia Legislative Black Caucus. But that, along with voter issues, is now at Joining me now to discuss all of this and a whole lot more, Deanna Hamilton, the newly named executive director of the Georgia Legislative Black Caucus. Director Hamilton, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. While the Democrats are center stage this week, the Republicans will hold their virtual convention next week. This is new territory for both. But I'm curious, from your viewpoint, how challenging is it, you think, to energize their respective bases, you know, from what usually is a a high energy event? And we're doing this virtually. Is that challenging, you think, for the parties?
2: I do not. Um, I actually think it's a compliment because you get to reach more people who typically aren't paying attention. Mm-hmm. But given the climate that we're in, more people are, I think, really energized and watching the DNC that normally would not watch the DNC. Really?
3: Yes. For those who aren't familiar with the GLBC, and it's nonpartisan, and I think the largest caucus of black legislators in the U.S., correct?
2: That is correct. We have 65 members in our caucus.
3: We're in a time now where you're a new leadership in this nonpartisan organization, but let's be clear, Director Hamilton, we're in a time of what some would call a political polarization moment. Would you agree with that?
2: Yes, I would agree with that. Um, It's very critical times. And for someone coming from a business background into the arena of politics, and just over the last three weeks to watch how polarizing it really is, um, has been very eye-opening, even for me. As, as once a one-time constituent in the marketplace, watching this from a distance.
3: When you think about this pandemic and obviously the state of Georgia, and one would say, well, we want our elected officials, we want our legislators to all be on the same page, but everyone isn't on the same page. How do you propose working through that?
2: Um, I, I would say one of the things I've told our caucus is we have to be strategic in our approach. We have a COVID task force that has been very diligent in putting an action plan together to try to move the agenda of the constituents in the marketplace, particularly our Black constituents in the marketplace, and looking out for their interests. But one of the things about being strategic is having the ability to build relationships across party lines. Um, Even though we're a nonpartisan organization, this is a time for us to be collective in our efforts. Um, I will say that the caucus has been pounding the pavement Mm -hmm. quite a bit with the action plan, as you've probably seen in the market as well, Mm -hmm. Um, on really bringing some noise around some of the challenges that our Black constituents are facing around the Department of Labor, housing, uh, public utilities. But the work is really being done. But coming on board in the midst of this, I literally started the day after on July 20th, and the very next day I was in the middle of a Zoom call with with Commissioner Butler. Um, And what I will give them credit for is they really held his feet to the fire um, and put an action plan in place to move the agenda forward. But one of the strategies that I challenge everyone with is being able to build those relationships across party lines, to have real conversations, to develop real solutions. It's not just about the protests. It's not just about screaming and being the agitator. It's also about finding viable solutions on both sides to move the agenda forward.
3: Now at the time of this broadcast, you all are planning for this town hall meeting, I believe it's August 20th, correct?
2: That is correct.
3: And what will be the message there?
2: The message is how do we develop relationships um, on both sides of the aisle to develop solutions? The goal is to develop solutions for the black constituents in the marketplace um, so that we are giving them viable solutions that will help them through this pandemic and beyond. But it is also to make sure that we are we are good leaders in our space and saying that we are open to sitting at the table and coming up um, with continued relationships. So when decisions are being made, you're looking to the caucus to help you make those decisions.
3: I also imagine you mentioned being on that call with labor Commissioner Mark Butler. Obviously, the employment is one issue, but I want to get your thoughts too on on education. Right now, most of the school districts are have returned to class in a virtual setting. There are a few that have had to reverse and go to a virtual setting when they were going to have in-class instruction, but all this relates to COVID. But are you all looking at the effects, the long-term effects of what this could have on, particularly those students who are from underserved communities and students in the rural community uh, where they have just connectivity issues?
2: Yes, um, that is one of the caucus's legislative priorities, is the digital divide and recognizing that everyone um, that has to be homeschooled does not have access to Wi-Fi or computers to actually do the work that is required. You know, in 2000, we thought that this would be our reality. And now we're in what we thought would be our reality in 2020. And so that that is one of the legislative priorities that will come to the table. And I am currently tasked with trying to put some program elements around that to bring light to the digital divide to ensure that the students across the state of Georgia have what they need in order to work in the space that they're now being forced to work in.
3: There's another area which you and I both know, depending on whom you ask, you'll get all types of opinions. Let's talk about affordable health care here. And obviously when you talk about Georgia, there's always the, the option of, okay, what can we do to make healthcare more accessible for those who need it. You all have something called removing barriers to affordable healthcare. That's part of your, your legislative priorities this year.
2: Yes, it is. Um, and so we're working with a lot of the healthcare companies as well as our legislators to see what we can put in place. Um, but as you know, we're taking our mandate from the federal lens. Um, and so once we see what, they're, what they can do, then we will come with an agenda and and hopefully a viable policy for the state of Georgia that will complement what is happening. But the challenge, of course, as you know, is the affordability of the healthcare. Mm -hmm. And so I am again tasked with um, getting a group of of our healthcare companies together to understand what those challenges will be for us and how we can develop again some viable solutions um, to help the constituents in the state of Georgia around the affordability of healthcare.
3: What's the likelihood you think, Director Hamilton of Georgia ever expanding Medicaid?
2: Hmm. You know, I will have to say, I have not looked at that at, at that extreme, lens, with that level of a lens. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know as we go into legislative session at the top of January, we will be doing a pre-session on what some of those true priorities are around policy. And I do know that there are conversations with the governor's office happening right now in reference to that. Um, But I am not really sure exactly how that will move forward just yet. Mm.
3: That has been a challenge (laughs) for a number of years now. Prior to Governor Kemp, obviously with Governor Nathan Deal's administration and criminal justice reform, was big on his was one of his priorities and Georgia has turned a corner Georgia has turned a long way as it relates to uh, criminal justice reform but this is also a part of your legislative priority as well that you all want to continue to reform the criminal justice system and I always ask people this question because I, I get different answers someone asked you the same one which is how do you define criminal justice reform
2: um, I think criminal justice reform is looking at the entire justice system. Not just pieces of the justice system based on something that has happened in the market that has made us raise awareness to it. I think it's looking at all pillars of, of criminal justice to see you know, where those inadequacies are and how we should address those from a policy perspective. I have to give kudos to the caucus who worked on the hate crime bill. Um, and our actually our chairwoman was one of the co-authors and sponsors of that bill and helped that bill pass the senate along with two other members um, of the caucus and so i just think looking at the entire um, criminal justice system in the state of georgia not just pieces that are affecting us because we see it on the news and bringing that up from a policy perspective on how you how you shift or navigate to make sure that it is inclusive and that it is fair.
3: Let's talk about you for a moment and, and your leadership here because you have a business background. Uh, how do you see that helping you in, in leading this organization?
2: Um, I asked them the same question when they I was approached. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. Um, but you know I said, you know, how can I as a business professional enact change in the space? And one of the things the caucus said to me was adding infrastructure and a business model to the work that is done by the caucus Mm -hmm. so that we can operationalize it and monetize it. And when we can monetize it, then we have a a greater ability to effect change by being able to develop policy, bring in subject matter experts around policies um, that help us take that to the floor and get it turned into law. And so it's been three weeks. Um, And I have been thrown into the fire, as they say. And one thing I know for sure is I can look at an organization and operationalize it um, and raise money for it. But the work itself around policy is the most important work Mm -hmm. and those legislative priorities for the state of Georgia. Um, And so my responsibility is to really, really put an infrastructure around the caucus raise the brand awareness of the caucus and give it equity in the marketplace so that when they are speaking um, and those legislative priorities are on the table, they are invited to tables where decisions are being made um, and they can enact true and develop true policy that becomes law for the state of Georgia and the black constituents that we represent.
3: Do you think there's a misconception about the the caucus that people have? Because one, it's the Georgia Legislative Black Caucus that maybe you all are always leaning in one direction. I
2: think that may be a perception that people have, but because we are nonpartisan, that is not our reality. There are some of our members that are not leaning towards one party. Mm -hmm. Our members are split between both parties. Our responsibility is to build relationships on both sides of the aisle.
3: Do you think people know that though?
2: They don't, and that is one of my responsibilities from a brand equity perspective is to begin to one, lift the caucus, really get the legislative priorities in the marketplace and place a narrative around the caucus and the work that the caucus is charged to do. Um, and also highlight the caucus members because most people don't know who the caucus members are, what they do, the policies that they stand for and write um, across the legislature. legislation, people don't know. Um, and that is part of my responsibility from a marketing lens.
3: I'll ask you the same question I've asked everybody else. From politics to the pandemic to the protests, 2020 has been quite a year. How do you sum all this up? What's been your takeaway so far?
2: It is my hope that everyone has done some self-checks, some self checks, as I call it, and their shadow work. Um, they've been able to sit back and recognize the world in which we live, the world in which they exist and live and what they can do better coming into 2021 the changes they can make um we have just seen a plethora of what we believed our reality was and how comfortable we are, were in our reality and now we know there was no there should have been no comfortability in it at all um and i hope people are doing the self-work to know what they need to do and put in place for themselves so that they can move their lives forward and their respective personal agendas forward. And it's, it's, it's gonna be very important for people, I hope, to have done this type of work from a financial lens, from a personal lens, um, from a career lens, because you can't always rely on your government to lead the way. You have to take some form of responsibility and accountability for the process as a collective. Why voting is important. Why showing up and understand what policies are is important. Um, you gotta know why you do what you do.
3: Y'all have concerns about any voter suppression issues?
2: Um, we are hope we do based on what we see in the market and what we have seen. Um, and so we are going a full out uh, voter campaign. And one of the priorities we are making is to explain the why it is important and the how. Um, so that the voter suppression is limited. I Because We can't say that it won't happen again, but what we can do is be proactive and get into our constituents and showing them exactly how this can potentially happen and what you need to do to ensure you're not affected by it.
3: Dina Hamilton, the newly named Executive Director of the Georgia Legislative Black Caucus. Director Hamilton, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Just three weeks on the job. I really appreciate it. Thank you.
2: Thank you.
0: Closer Look continues now
3: here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. It's called the African American Panoramic Experience Museum, also known as the Apex Museum. And if you don't know, it's considered the oldest black history museum in Atlanta. It's located in the Sweet Auburn Historic Neighborhood in downtown Atlanta. Now, the museum's motto summarizes its legacy and mission. It's pretty simple. Where every month is Black History Month. Well, like many other museums and other historical and cultural entities here in Atlanta and throughout the nation, the Apex is temporarily closed due to the COVID 19 pandemic. Joining me now to talk more about this is Apex Museums founder and CEO, Dan Moore. Mr. Moore, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it.
4: It is good to be here.
3: Let's go back some decades for our listeners who may not be familiar with the Apex. Briefly give the backstory here, because the inspiration behind why you wanted to create this museum is is quite fascinating.
4: I started quite a while ago. I'm not a museum person. I'm actually a filmmaker. I came to Atlanta in 1974 to start my second film company here in Atlanta. Then in 1978, I had the pleasure of going to a meeting where they were honoring me. Dr. Benjamin Mays and as I sat there and listened to all the accolades given to him for all he had done, the first question I asked myself was what's going to happen to him and his history and his legacy when he's gone and will it be forgotten? Then I thought to myself of all the cities in the nation, why doesn't Atlanta have a Black History Museum? Mm -hmm. With all that goes on here in Atlanta, with Dr. King, with SALC, with SNCC, with CORE, all with organizations, it just baffled my mind that there was no Black History Museum here in Atlanta. So four months later, I started. It was originally called Collections of Life and Heritage. Mm -hmm. And then when I had Valerie Jackson come on our board and told her what this was all about, She said, no, that's not a museum. That's something very, very different and very special. So you've got to change the name. So the name was changed to APEX, which is an acronym for African American Panoramic Experience. Mm. You know, you mentioned
3: um, Benjamin Mays. And when you think, Mr. Moore, we've just lost three giants from the civil rights era this year. And Reverend Laurie, and C.T. Vivian and obviously Congressman John Lewis, now more than ever to not only collect and curate that experience in our history, but also just for folks, for generations that don't know anything about our history, now more than ever, an organization, an entity like yours is needed. So with Apex being closed now, what concerns do you have about being able to weather this
4: storm and come back online soon. Well, our plan is to reopen on on this coming Saturday, but I'm very, very cautious about how we open Mm -hmm. because while people are counting numbers and looking at graphs, I'm seeing individuals and they seem to have lost focus and are looking at just how many people, whether the numbers, but every time someone passes, that's someone's loved one. Mm-hmm. That's somebody's mother, father, sister, wife, cousin, uncle, aunt, daughter, son, friend, whatever. So I wanna make sure that we are prepared for that opening, that we are looking at all of the social um, requirements. Every visitor must have a mask, we'll have a mask here for them if they don't. We're also looking at social distancing because it's very important to me that everybody who walks in that door walks out safely, mm-hmm. and that's more important to me than anything else. So while we have been closed temporarily, we will we plan to open this coming Saturday. We will change our hours. We will ask people to register and buy tickets in advance.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Make sure we control the size of the audience as well. But we're coming back and we're coming back stronger than
3: ever. Mr. Moore, do you have a a sizable team there that can help you through all of this and make sure that you all are adhering to the social distance guidelines?
4: We have already done all of that research in terms of what needs to be done. We've already set up the gallery and the trolley car theater and marked off the spaces that are six feet apart. We're also having someone come in in two days to do a complete sterilization of the entire facility. We will require masks of everyone who comes in. We rearrange some things to make it much easier for them to navigate and for our docents and tour guides to be able to interact with them better. So we are already prepared for that opening. May I also add that one of the things that I guess separates us from most Black history museums. We had someone years ago who came to us, his name was Professor Asa Hilliard. Mm-hmm. He is a person, if you if you know about him, very mm-hmm. steeped in African history. And one of the things he drilled into us over and over and over again is never let them begin our history with slavery. So we have a special exhibition dedicated to Asa Hilliard is called Africa, the Untold Story.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: We begin to tell the story of who we really are and the impact Africa has had internationally and the positive things that have come out of Africa. It makes a difference in what people see and feel when they come through the doors of the apex and experience what we are presenting. I have an exhibit on black inventors, which blows most people's minds. When you see all the things that Blacks have invented and how they impact our lives today, and many of these things were invented back in the 1800s. Mm -hmm. Then, of course, for the young people, when they see Michael Jackson on that wall as an inventor, it really takes them out. But Michael Jackson has a patent on what he called the anti-gravity shoe, which he created, had patented, and that's how he did the lean which many folks tried to do and kept falling. We (laughs) thought it was some kind of special effect or some wiring or whatever. It was actually a shoe that he had designed and patented, which goes to show you how many things we have had the creativity to do, and in many instances years ago, were not even given credit for. We also have two films that we show in our Trolley car theater. The first is called The Journey, Narrated by Ossie Davis. Mm-hmm. And the second one is called Sweet Auburn Street of Pride, which is narrated by Cecily Tyson and Julian Bond. Mm-hmm. So when mm-hmm. you come out of the apex, you, ha- you would have been touched by ancient African civilizations. You've been touched by the great accomplishments that have happened not only uh, in Georgia or in Auburn Avenue but nationally and internationally. And then you'll have a glimpse of Auburn Avenue today. And I keep asking the question rhetorically, you had former slaves and sharecroppers who built Auburn Avenue to the extent that Fortune Magazine called Auburn Avenue in 1956, the richest Negro street in the world. Mm-hmm. Looking at it now, you look at the decline of Auburn Avenue, and what they call gentrification, and I call it colonization, it has changed dramatically. It makes me ask the question rhetorically, how come former slaves and former sharecroppers can build an empire that free slaves cannot maintain?
3: Which brings me to this, Mr. Moore, because a lot of folks may not be aware of the Apex Museum. How do you envision the future of this What's so needed museum in the neighborhood that you mentioned is changing. Will the museum be able to stay there?
4: Oh positively. Without without a question. We are forty two years old. Mm-hmm. We own our building. We own the land next to it. And we are debt free. The plan has always been not to have a static museum with simple artifacts that people can see this is a desk where someone sat at when they signed the paper or this is the clothing someone wore at a certain time. We're going to build on the adjacent parking lot, a 40,000 square foot facility with a complete walk-through history Mm -hmm. like Epcot Center. So we're going to transport you back in time to ancient African civilization where you can see the impact Africa has had on the world, basically. And the resources that Africa has given to the world, that includes written language, that Mm -hmm. includes mathematics, that includes astrology and astronomy and architecture, that includes uh, medicine, that includes all the things that we enjoy today for birth in Africa. Mm -hmm. It's the person who tells the history that makes that mark. That's why we intend to make sure that we tell our history from an african an African-American perspective. Mr. Moore, as we wrap up, let me ask you,
3: how often are you able to get new exhibits or new experiences in that you can switch in and out for visitors?
4: We change the exhibits periodically. Uh, I can't put a time limit on it necessarily, but the exhibit we have here now has been here for a while Mm -hmm. because it's very popular. That's the one on Black Inventors. We also have an exhibit on women in STEM. And that is so exciting for young black women to come in here and look and see 25 or 30 women who look like them, have made a major mark in society just by becoming women who are attached to STEM. We just put up another exhibit yesterday about why we must vote. Sometimes we look at the poll, we look at what's going on, we look at Um, all kinds of things that go on, and we say, well, I'm not going to vote. Well, if you don't pull a lever, you're still voting. Because every non-vote is still a vote. And it's a vote for the opposing party. So we're saying, without question, we have got to go to the polls. We have got to vote. And you think about people like John Lewis and C.T. Vivian and others. They paid a tremendous price to make sure that we were able to vote. I think about C.T. Vivian, when he stood on the steps of the courthouse and the sheriff actually kicked him, hit him with a stick and knocked him down. Mm -hmm. C.T. Vivian got up and asked the question, what kind of people are you? we have just come to register to vote. That's Mm -hmm. all we want to do. Here you are stopping us and beating us. What kind of people are you? Then, when John Lewis walked across, went across the Edmund Pettus Bridge to start a voting campaign, the state troopers came in and drove him out, fractured his skull. But he became, in their opinion, the conscious of the Congress. What happens when a man from Arkansas, with um, as, as almost like a teenager? gets into a movement and is so engrossed, he ends up becoming the conscious of the Congress. So that kind of spirit, we must protect, number one. Then I ask myself rhetorically, but who will pass, who will we pass the baton? As I look at many of our young folks today, some of them mean well, but I don't see necessarily on the horizon uh, many young people who are ready to take that baton and run it. Mr. Moore, when we
3: started this conversation, I asked you to reflect back to nineteen to the nineteen seventies when you had the idea to to operate this museum. When you look back and you reflect on your journey with the Apex Museum, what goes through your mind?
4: Well, really what goes through my mind is first of all, when I started the Apex, I felt I was gonna be able to raise this new museum within two years. And that was forty two years ago. <laughs> So it's been a journey, but yeah. I, I must say that um, it's been prayer that's brought us through. We have had a lot of opposition, and I will not never call anyone's name. We've had a lot of opposition about the APEX, and the very first question I was asked when I talked about starting the APEX, I was asked on a number of occasions, well, who sanctioned it? Well, who gave you the authority to do this? Who gave you the permission to do this? Well, I'm from the North. And they said, well, who is this Yankee coming down here in the South and telling us how to preserve our history? But I'm glad I have preserved you. I'm glad I've had some people around me who have been a part of this institution for a number of years. I'm glad of the support of a lot of young people who are college students at the time who gave us their support, who became researchers, who became writers, and many of whom, we've helped about 30 people actually become published authors since we've started. And that's something that we're, we're proud of. And we will continue doing that as long as there's breath in this body. Wow,
3: and the legacy continues. Dan Moore, veteran filmmaker and the founder and CEO of the Apex Museum. Mr. Moore, thank you. So much for taking the time. I really appreciate it.
4: And thank you for inviting us. We appreciate
3: it. Closer Look continues now. You're on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. It's been said, and not just by me, it's not business as usual across all business sectors. We know why, you Well, know, because of the pandemic. From Fortune 500 companies to small mom and pops, all these are filling the effects of the pandemic. But what we're hearing is that black-owned businesses are among the hardest hit. And that's according to new research from the University of California at Santa Cruz. 41% of black-owned businesses are not expected to survive the coronavirus pandemic compared to 17% white-owned businesses. Well, here in Atlanta, a foundation is trying to help black owned businesses survive and specifically black business owners who are parents. I love this name. The foundation is called Parentpreneur Foundation. And joining me now is James Oliver. He's the founder of Parentpreneur Foundation and We Montage. And then we have Pamela Booker, founder and CEO of Coils by Nature and also a recent recipient of a grant from the foundation. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it.
1: Delight to be here. Thank
3: you. James, let me start with you. When you hear that statistic about Black-owned businesses that are expected to not survive mm-hmm. during this pandemic, what goes to your mind?
5: You know, unfortunately, it's not surprising, right? It seems like, you know, just due to systemic issues, whenever these bad types of things happen, you know, Black people tend to get the worst of it. So it's unfortunate, but it's not surprising.
1: Mm-hmm. Pamela, how long has COILS by Nature been around? we've Coils by nature has been around for 10 years we actually celebrated 10 years this year all of this year
3: and for our listeners who may not be familiar with coils by nature tell them about it
1: coils by nature is an all-natural hair and skincare company Um, we create natural products with great ingredients at an affordable price for the entire family
3: now you have something for people to have beautiful locks like me Absolutely. Yes, what you got over there? What you got?
1: <laughs> we have we have an amazing uh, shampoo that's a foaming shampoo, so to get directly to your scalp. We have a stimulating hair growth rinse with apple cider vinegar and an amazing tea made with calendula and nettle. So we have everything for locks: conditioners, um, butters, everything you need for your beautiful locks.
3: OK, so now that I've gone shopping, <laughs> <laughs>
5: that's coils with a K, by the way. Right? I
3: know. I yes, love it. Coils with a K. Absolutely. And Pamela, when the pandemic set in, what concerns did you have about your company and if you could make it?
1: The, so when the pandemic set in, we expected to be at home like with everybody else. We thought we would be watching Netflix and, you know, we would just, you know, try to do whatever we can to make online sales. But that wasn't the case. Our online sales like actually tripled, mm. but our supply chain was ruined. Mm. So where we, could, we couldn't we could get bottles, we couldn't get tops, um, we couldn't get our, our normal packaging because the larger companies were buying up all of the packaging for hand sanitizer. So although our online sales increased, we couldn't, you know, at one point in time we were yeah really afraid that we would have to close shop because we could not find packaging like bottles and tops and caps and pumps and sprays. So it was a a, a scary time for a minute. You
3: had the business, but you didn't have what you needed to complete the orders. You had people going online wanting to order, but you didn't have your other essential products that you needed for your own products.
1: Simple things that we never had to worry about before, like jars and 12 ounce bottles and eight ounce bottles and caps like these are things we never ever had to worry about before all of our suppliers were coming up short they didn't have it they were out of stock so it was it was real scary for a minute
3: i want to go back to james for a moment tell me how you came up with parentpreneur and the foundation
5: uh so how much time we got man it goes back to 2013 (laughs) when i was uh living in the know middle of nowhere northeast wisconsin a thousand miles away from family and i was where i cleaned out my savings i was trying to launch remontage and um you know my 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 ex-wife was pregnant with our twins and i was needing to get into a startup accelerator to have the credibility that i would need to raise capital launch the business i was looking to raise two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Um, So two days before I was going to begin the accelerator, which was a two hour drive each way, we had to unexpectedly give birth to the children, to the twins, and they only weighed two pounds apiece. Mm So, you know, I'm in this accelerator and, you know, back and forth to the NICU, crying every day, uh, just waking up at 2 a.m. every morning from the stress of it all. But, you know, somehow, through the grace of God, I got through it and, Right, through, right before demo day, which is when we had to go pitch a room full of would-be investors. I got a call before I was no on demo day, right before I was going on stage. I got a call from one of the angel investor groups that we pitched and said, hey, are we going to fill your entire round? And I'm just like, wait, what do you mean? He said, we're going to give you $250,000. And after everything that I've been through on that journey at that point, I just you know dropped to my knees. I thank God. So, so from that point, really, um, I mean, I acutely understand that The pain of being a parent and an entrepreneur. You know, I wrote a book to inspire parentpreneurs to be the best parent entrepreneur possible. Uh, The book's called The More You Hustle, the Luckier You Get. Mm -hmm. You Can Be a Successful Parentpreneur. Some people have referred to it as the realest book about entrepreneurship they've ever read. So after I published the book in 2017, I was like, one day I'm going to start a foundation to help parents. And you know, I was gonna sell my business, take a million dollars in the proceeds of the sale to see the foundation. And then COVID hit, uh, it was back in March and I was having a chance coffee meeting with some acquaintances. And at this time, you know, a lot of people were freaking out about COVID and I understand that during every crisis, within every crisis exists opportunity. So I was training my mind on opportunities and during this meeting, somebody was like, hey, why are you waiting to start the foundation? Do it now, and I was like, "Wow, like, okay, God, that's God inspiring me through somebody else." I'm like, "All right, cool, that's great." So I'm going to do it now. So I just went headfirst down the path, and then so initially it was going to be for all parent but then George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Aubrey, <clears throat> all these crazy things started happening. I had this insane my own Karen encounter with a woman terrorizing me in my own home. We had to call the police, get a trespass warrant. I mean. That, plus then I started looking at data. Mm-hmm. There's this phenomenal chart from the Fed that shows the median uh, family wealth for Black families and white families, and th- the white median family wealth is 10x that of Black people. And, you know, when I combined all those things, I was like, you know, this foundation needs to be for Black people who are parents and entrepreneurs, because more than anybody else, we need the, the empowerment and support.
3: Mm-hmm. Pamela, let me ask you this, as a business owner and then also your parent, and I know folks do this all the time, maybe we don't talk about it enough, trying to balance being a business owner and then obviously being a parent.
1: How do you balance? It's been very interesting since March. Uh, me and my husband, we run our company full-time together, and we have a 12-year-old son that's that's with us. We have a total of five children, and it has been very interesting because we are truly blessed that he can come to the office with us. Like we have a space. He can come to the office with us, Mm -hmm. but like balancing that time of giving him his time that he needs and then us trying to run, well, running the business, it's just like, it is a, a, a balance. I call it like a juggling act. You know, some things are in the air while I'm working on other things and then I'll catch it and I'll throw something else in the air. Um, But it's been really, it's been, it's been very, very, very interesting uh, for our family. I think we grew closer as a family because we see each other like there's no after school, there's no basketball practice. It really, really, really slowed us down and like made us like, okay, hey, how you doing type, type thing.
3: So James, how much money are we talking about here? How much funding are you all committed to? to helping these business owners who are also parents?
5: Right, so it, the answer is it depends, right? Because we just launched the foundation, we have a $50,000 seed grant. And so right out the gates, we wanted to be to have impact, which is why we gave away the $10,000. You know, So we are currently fundraising. Um, I was just talking with Brad the other day and coming up with a strategy to get to half a million dollars in funding so we could begin to look more effectively to the future you know, I want to do another cohort in the next couple of months. That's 25 people, and we do $2,500. That's you know, north of $60,000. We want to give away. So the only way we can do that is through you know partnerships, uh, fundraising. We are able to accept tax-deductible donations. So that's that's big for us. Uh, we just gave away. Oh, Focus Brands. I got to mention this. Focus Brands is an Atlanta-based food, uh, restaurant company. They just partnered with us. They gave us $1,000 of gift cards. So $20, $50 cards that I mailed the other day. So if you got a small family, hey, now you don't have to cook. So we're talking about Pam's problem with trying to juggle it all. I just took cooking off your, off your plate and <laughs> I, just put, I just put $50 back in your pocket. And, and so we also have Amazon, AWS is giving us $5,000 in cloud credit services. So that's $2,500 a year. That's $2,500 back in your business bank account. So it's not just the grants, it's also these resources. We're gonna be looking for ways to pay for therapy, For the members of our community, you know, I'm playing phone tag with the Emory Psychotherapy Center right now. I'm hoping to bring them on board. I'm prepared to cut a check for that, like right away Mm -hmm. to get, because, you know, right now with everything going on, you know, mental health is so important. And I know I will be sitting in front of somebody's screen because I need to talk to somebody about some things, too.
3: So you're looking at a holistic approach in helping these parentpreneurs.
5: That's it. Holistically, Mm -hmm. not just the business. That's right,
3: So, Pam, for someone listening that says, talk a little bit about what is needed beyond the money for someone like you. And you heard James talk about resources as it relates to mental health. Um,
1: Mm -hmm. How important is that for you? It is. It's very, very important. And I I love the holistic approach, uh, approach to what James is doing because it's not just, you know, giving black businesses money. OK, it's it's about the whole picture of it, like our mental wellness, um, making sure we can actually feed our family and taking things off of our plate. That plays a lot into everything that's going on and the stresses of uh, running a business, having your children at home and being in a pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, that is that's very, very, very beneficial, especially for entrepreneurs who can't afford um you know,
4: $75, $150 an hour to
3: talk to a therapist. Mm, and child care as well. For those yeah. child care centers that are open, not many are open. As we prepare to wrap up, and James, I'll start with you. What has been your takeaway during this pandemic as it relates to Black entrepreneurs and then also parenting because you're at the intersection of all of that and then also you're trying to help?
5: Excuse me, great question. I think the key thing is, Mental health and well-being is important, but also know it's like I talked about before. Looking for the opportunities in the crisis. If you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. So we have to change our perspective. We can't get sucked in by all the negativity and all the doom and gloom, and we just have to change the way we look at things. And um, and I mentioned to you, I'm co-creating this whole experience with God. I mean, in four months during the middle of a pandemic, I had an idea got funding and gave away $10,000. And I'm doing that because I'm in alignment. So, you know, if that matters to you, you know, being in alignment with God, I think that's
4: huge
5: right now for me, especially.
3: Pamela, I want to ask about COILS by nature. Were you able to to find a supplier for your
1: products? Yes, we were able to um, rebuild our supply chain. And um, one thing I want to say about, what James is doing when the whole black lives matter and everybody supporting black businesses and all of these huge companies and foundations, you know, giving grants and all of this stuff to black entrepreneurs, you know, I filled out many of applications and recorded videos and all of this stuff. And, you know, that's not saying we're, we're a credible business, Mm -hmm. um, and crickets, nothing. Nothing.
3: Were you able to take advantage of any resources through the CARES Act?
1: Yes. So we did get a PPP and um, the EIDL grant. Mm -hmm. And that definitely helped because once we found our suppliers, you have to now purchase in larger bulk. So instead of purchasing, you know, 5,000, you have to purchase 25,000 pieces in order to, you know, get it at a good price and get it over here. So, what to actually apply for something and get the money—that was monumental. And I, when I told James, I was like, "Wow, you know, I appreciate being selected for this because I applied for something. They said it was for black businesses, and uh, and and I actually got it. You know, so mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of businesses are saying, you know, we have this for black businesses and all of this stuff and grants and everything." But I applied to, like, at least 80% of them. And to actually receive the grant, that meant so much to Mm -hmm. us, you know, um, to actually apply for something and get it. Uh, So I I just want to thank James for even, you know, having this holistic idea of helping parentpreneurs. Because every little bit helps Mm -hmm. tremendously. And uh, we're so appreciative of the grant.
3: And, James, I want to also just give you an opportunity to talk about your own business because you're a business owner, as we mentioned. Tell me about WeMontage. What you doing
5: over there? Yeah, so WeMontage.com is the world's only website that lets you turn your permanent photo memories into removable wallpaper. I think removable is key here, especially if you have kids.
3: (laughs) (laughs) 100% you take any image you take a yeah, picture of my cats and I can put it on the oh, wall yeah, is that yeah, what you're saying go right to
5: the, go right to the website I mean, Martha Stewart's blog called it a decor item all homeowners should know
3: well hey uh, if Martha Stewart endorses it hey come on you don't need it's rose sky
5: <laughs>
3: <laughs> James Oliver the founder of We Montage and Parentpreneur Foundation is helping so many entrepreneurs who also are parents Pamela Booker founder and CEO of Coils by Nature Best of luck to both of you. Thank you for taking the
5: time. Thank you so much.
3: That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelley Knavey. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more.